Welcome to Jesus Culture, where we discuss Jesus and His Word at the intersection of culture. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining us at Jesus Culture today. Um, the question we have today is, who's your neighbor? Uh, this podcast is actually a recording done at Oceanside Christian Fellowship on August 8th, um, in a sermon entitled, Who is Your Neighbor?, dealing with the text Luke 10, 25-37. So, hope you stay with us um, and think through this issue, who is your neighbor? been up here for a while. I first want to just introduce two great friends that are here. Um, not only was I a pastor here uh, at least a thousand years ago, but so was Mike Leonzo. Mike Leonzo was one of the, the, one of the first elders. Denny, of course, is past a thousand years. But, um, but Mike Leonzo and Kathy are here visiting, and they were one of the early elders. So they're great friends. It's great to have you. So you guys should just like, you know, give a wave or something, you know, to the, to the people. So... It's great having you. I'm really honored that Brandon asked me to speak today. Um, I have to say, you know, I've, I've spoken in many situations. I'm not usually that intimidated, but I'm intimidated by this pulpit. I mean, you think about, you guys are very, very lucky. I don't know how lucky that you understand the preaching and the teaching you get here. I mean, you have PhDs, you have all these amazing teachers. Um, so it's a little intimidating. Um, I won't have the charts and socio-historical insight of Joe, I can tell you that. Uh, or the clear, communicative, and humor of Brandon, um, the story form of Mark, or even the cool southern accent of Chris. You know, I, I can get out my Boston accent if you want. Sometimes it does slip out, but we'll, we'll see. It's just not as cool as the southern accent. So anyways, it is, is awesome to be here, and I'm, I'm, I really am um, excited. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you've called us to, Lord. Um, you've called us something so much larger than just being saved. And I pray we see this clearly today as we look into your word. And let's pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, last year, I'm sure last year has been a great one for most of you. Uh, certainly has for me. It's affected all of us. It's affected my travel. It's affected many things we do. Um, you know, last year I was overseas, living overseas with my wife Donna. And um, we were stuck in, in Turkey, actually. We were going to be, uh, you know, the, our season. Uh, I coach football over there. That's part of my ministry. Um, it, church planning, working with college students and so on. And um, they canceled the season, but we were stuck. And so we were there, there for about five months in a very, very small apartment. I got COVID. That was exciting. Um, so I was pretty sick there for a while. Um, but the worst, I think, of this year is not that I can't travel or not that I have to wear a mask or any of these things. I don't think those are the issues for me. The issues to me is really seeing the church divide itself this year more than any time I've ever seen it in a church. The church has always had issues, right? I mean, let's face it. I mean, those of us on the inside realize that sometimes in church we're not that united. But this year has been very, very bad. I mean, I've been ghosted by liberal friends thinking I'm too conservative and conservative friends thinking I'm too liberal. Uh, reminds me of a time at my church that, uh, in Seattle we, um, that we, we had a very large uh, outreach to Muslims. We had a large Muslim population. And so we had some great relationships with the local imams. 
and we did a night of a dialogue. Of, it was an incredible night, about 300 people, about half and half Muslims and people from my church were there. Um, we sat, we ate together, we discussed, um, we gave, each gave a presentation, we had a panel. It was a great night of uh, being able to not only understand one another, but to bring the gospel to at least 150 Muslims in the area up in Seattle. It was a great night, except for the bloggers that hit us after. Um, and it was really sad when you have a blogger, it was a well-known blogger at the time, reacting to our, our dialogue with the Muslims. She called us dumb so-called Christians, heretics, a reprobate church, denying sola scriptura, Christian dupes, den of thieves, false teachers, and one of my favorite, useless idiots. Um, we were called in this blog. It's interesting because just recently, well, in the last few years, was an article came out of how evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, are aiding Islam in this country. And the article also mentioned the dialogue, and my name was mentioned in the dialogue. And I had responded to this, so I pulled out this response um, and thought about it, because one of the things we were accused of is aiding terrorism, okay? Because we were working with an organization up in, up in the Seattle area, and they supposedly had ties to CARE, which supposedly had ties to Hamas, okay? This is what we were told, or this is what they stated. And it was this idea that we're aiding terrorism in the United States. And I, and I thought about that, and part of my response was, who cares if 150 Muslims were terrorists that night? Because I can guarantee you, I sat with the architect of, at the time, Microsoft 7, very wealthy man from Saudi Arabia that was incredibly intelligent with his family. He was not a terrorist, I can pretty much guarantee that. Or maybe Microsoft is in cahoots with him too. We were able to, 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 to dialogue, to preach the gospel to at least 150 Muslims in Seattle that night. And my biggest question for them and for us is, are we more passionate about sharing the gospel with people we don't like or that we fear? Or are we more passionate about eradicating them from the United States? And I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Because what I've seen in this last year is many Christians online and so on would be in the latter category. Get them out of here. And the fact is, we have Muslims all around us. We have opportunities all around us. And I think we should take advantage of that. Brandon asked me to speak on Course Radical Hospitality through the lens of Scripture. In my experience um, of planting churches, particularly my church in Seattle, which we did a lot of outreach in that area, and of course the Jordan trip. So I'm going to be looking through the lens today of Luke 10, 25 to 37. Um, it is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a very familiar story. If you've been around, you've heard the story quite a bit. Um, it's one of the best-known Bible stories, as a matter of fact. And the pop version of the story goes something like this, that this Samaritan helped the guy in need, and so we need to be nicer to people and help people. Okay, That's, that's a nice application of Luke 10, 25 37. But the parable Jesus told has way more bite than that than just that idea. Uh, in this parable, we see Jesus turning an abstract theological theme and pointing it to its real-life application, one that I think affects us today incredibly. 
And so one of the questions I'm asking, though, is how big is your gospel? How big is your vision of the kingdom of God? And then we look at a theme today. The theme is when we truly fall in love with our creator, God, and gain a vision of this kingdom, the work of the kingdom will be a natural part of your life. So we have something that the world desperately needs. And I think automatically you go, yes, they need salvation. They need the gospel. Absolutely. But it's even larger than that. And I, I was going to show a video. I guess I'm going to show it in the second one because YouTube doesn't allow certain videos from uh, movies. But if any of you have seen Black Panther, anyone seen it? So I don't know how much to explain. Uh, I love the Marvel um, films. I love them. And in the Black Panther, um, the storyline is this, this fictitious African country named Wakanda has incredibly advanced alien technology. But they have kept it to themselves over the years, and they've had the technology to mask who they are. Okay, So they're looked at as this, these vagabonds, these sheep herders that no one even has colonized because they don't matter at all in the world. And at the end of the movie, there's an extra. If you know the Marvel movies, they always have that extra after the credits. And the extra is King T'Challa. Okay? He's speaking to the UN. And he is saying, he's realized through the movie that his people have been wrong. To keep this to themselves, to bless themselves and not give it to anybody has been wrong. And it's now time to give this technology to the world. And he tells the UN that. And there's a scene where one of the guys in the UN, I think, it's, I think he's one of the, the American delegates, says, King T'Challa, I appreciate this, but what are a bunch of sheep herders going to give to this world? And it ends with him smiling and, and the few of the women that he brought smiling. Because they know they have something the world needs. The world just doesn't know that. That is who we are. We are the sheep herders to the world, but we have a, a technology, if you will, that is badly needed. And so we have got to see the gospel in that realm. Um, so as we, let me see, as we move on here, whoops. Um, I usually put from the head, a lot of my sermons uh, I put from the head to the heart because I want us to understand what does this say? What does the text say? And then why did, what does it matter to us? So from the head, as we're looking at, there's, there's, I want to look at this story from four angles. The question, the answer, the conundrum, and the challenge. And so starting off with the question, what is the question asked? And so as we look at Luke 10, you can turn to that, if you will, 25 through 27. I purposely did not put up the verses I put up other verses I use, but the verses here, you can turn electronics, your Bible, whatever you want to do, just turn to it uh, with me. And um, what we see right away is the Lord, excuse me, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the, the question right away is in verse 25 is, is this question of what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question is, what is he asking? Is he asking how do I go to heaven? Or how do I get saved? Okay, well, first of all, we see that he's a lawyer. A lawyer is an expert in the law. He's basically a theologian of the time. He understands the law very, very well. He's a teacher of the law. Um, and so 
this question, what is eternal life, is interesting because it literally means the life of the ages. It's only used three times in Luke, but John uses it quite a bit, about 14 times. And as a matter of fact, in John 17, 3, what we see here is Jesus defining eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, that's a, a different definition that possibly some of you might have had when the question is asked. If eternal life is knowing God, there's something about the current time that matters here. That this aspect of eternal life starts now. It starts with this relationship of knowing God. And that God is of supreme importance. Traditionally, the Jews would have a, a couple of understandings here. Now, it, it would have an understanding of, of life after death. That's one. But it would also have this idea of a life well-lived studying the word of God. As a matter of fact, in the Babylonian Talmud, written a few years after Christ, a few centuries after Christ, I should say, um, it says this. Uh, Rabbi Shimon bar Yohai said, these people abandon eternal life of Torah study and engage in temporal life for their own sustenance. Basically, he's saying is they, they, they get rid of eternal life for, for things in the life that don't matter. They're just going on their life, and they're not caring about the study of the Torah, the word of God. And so they would have had this idea of eternal life, that eternal life it comes from studying the word of God. Um, matter of fact, John 5, 39, Jesus addresses that when he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So this eternal life is maybe a little different than you might have assumed. Um, the second idea they have, and I think it's more connected to what he's saying here, is this idea of the age to come. The Jews would have had two understandings of eternal life, and it's uh, this idea of life in its present age, which is evil, and an age to come. And an age to come has a connotation of eternal life, but it also has the idea with it that there's, there's something the Messiah is going to bring to the culture right then and there. There's going to be something that's happening into the Jewish mind, this age to come is, I want to be part of that because the Messiah is going to fully change my situation here politically. He's completely going to change and in a sense make Israel great again. He's going to make this a place that my people reign once again. And so he's thinking in that terms. When he asks that question, it's a normal question for a rabbi to ask. How do I share in that age? And I think that's very much closer to what he's asking. See, the clash here is two very different visions of the kingdom of God. Very different. Because what he's asking is, how can I be blessed in the future kingdom? And it's interesting because Jesus in Mark 1.14, preaches this kingdom of God. It says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preaches the gospel before he goes to the, to the cross. You know, I actually wrote a book on this um, concept of, you know, what is the gospel? Well, it's bigger than just you going to heaven. It's bigger than that because Jesus is preaching that gospel before he goes to the cross. And it's the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is often lost on quite a lot of people because there's a clash of visions. The, the lawyer envisions making Israel a great place again. 
But Jesus sees the kingdom as God's grace and mercy bringing justice, love, and joy to the world. One commentator says, Jesus didn't die to rescue us from the world, but to rescue the world from evil. He is not just, he's not calling us out of the world to get us away from evil. I will submit to you that he is calling you to the world. Jesus himself says in John 17 that he is not, um, he, he prays that they're in the world, but not of it. But one theologian, Michael Horton, says the problem is many Christians are of the world, but not in it. And that's a problem. Many of us live like it's, we're part of the world, and even the way we go about speaking about things like even politics, we speak about politics the way the world speaks about it, and it's hateful. So we're the no difference when we say the world is changed by the right person in than the person that's on the other side of the spectrum. Because sometimes we're of the world, but not in the world. We're not engaging the world for Jesus Christ. Two different visions. If we see the gospel as just a futuristic kingdom, escape from judgment and personal loss, we miss out and we lose the meaning of the gospel and God's kingdom for our life. I don't know if you guys saw the Terminator. The, uh, I think it was the second Terminator. So, you know, the first one, Ar Arnold's the bad guy. And the second one, he comes back as the good guy. And Sarah Connor is completely changed from, from this kind of bumbling, you know, young gal to now she's like this warrior ripped woman, right? I mean, you've seen it. She's all ripped. She's ready to go. She'll do anything to basically stop this other Terminator. Why? because she's seen a vision of the future that transformed her thinking on this present earth. That's what the vision of the kingdom does to people. That when you begin to understand what the future looks like, that we're not there yet, but that Christ has brought forth this, this incredible vision of the kingdom, then we'll begin to understand what our role is in that kingdom. So from the question is the answer. It's a very interesting answer in verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, what, the, what the, the, the expert of the law did was conflate two verses. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, 5 does say that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, your strength, and with all your mind. Your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus 19, 18, um, and 34. And what we see here is what's called the great commandment. The great commandment, Jesus himself was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest law? And he says this, he quotes this. This guy is right on. There's nothing wrong about what he said, and Jesus commends him. In 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will, and you will live. Jesus completely commends him for, doing, for saying the right thing. His theology was right. This dude's been to Bible studies. He's been to many. He knows the word of God. He got it right. But the story doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish world, this isn't that mind-boggling. In the first century, there's a Jewish philosopher named Philo um, who basically, he said, he said this. He says, love the Lord and the neighbor. Love the Lord with all your life and each other with a true heart. This was normal to the Jewish world. To love God and love your neighbor. That was in the law. They understood that. 
So this was not unique, but how it was executed is unique. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, and do this and you will live. Now, is Jesus teaching a works-based religion? No. No, he's not. He's answering the question. He's dealing with a person that is looking for this kingdom, that he can be somebody in that kingdom. You see this all through the, the New Testament, where the, 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 you know, uh, the sons of thunder want to have this place in the new kingdom. They're looking for this political kingdom. There's something that's coming. And Jesus is, 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 is expanding their vision. See, the gospel is transforming us to be suitable for his kingdom, not our kingdom. And it's interesting here, when Jesus says this, then go and do this. Do this. The theology doesn't stand as something that's here in the head, but it does move to the heart. It works from, from what God has is, is told us and who God is, and it works out practically in our life. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the world, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. I think a lot of times we have what's called a cognitive dissonance, we say we believe something, and then we act a different way. Some of the things I've seen online, particularly, but even in the news and, and articles and so on, are Christians saying things, sometimes to each other, in, in, in incredibly hateful fashion. A disunity, a hate of one another. I've seen churches split down the middle over political issues. And yet we're called to unity. I mean, Ephesians is clear that, that strive hard for unity with humility. But we can hate our brother or sister because they voted for Trump or they voted for Biden. We have a problem. That's a cognitive dissonance of what God has called us to and how we act in our daily lives. See, Jesus is equating eternal life with loving God and others. Well, how is it that we can act this way? Most often it's because we're trusting our own sensibilities at the moment. In fact, Tim Keller um, says this about that. I thought it was really good. He says, if the truths of the Bible never correct our sensibilities, you aren't worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. That's an incredible statement. Think about this. If the truths of the Bible never correct your sensibilities, you aren't worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. Let me ask you a question. Has there been a time in your life when you are vehemently one way or another? Like, I believe this is the way to, this is what's right and wrong. And you go into your Bible, and you look at your Bible, and the Holy Spirit is impressing on your brain that this way is not good, this is what is true. Have you made the turn? Have you made the turn there? Have you, have, have you been convicted of scripture that says your reason, which is fallen, is not the way to go? This is the way to go. That can be political, that can be relational, how we work in the church. Have you been convicted of your own pride, of your own arrogance? Do we allow scripture to shape who we are as people? Tim Keller is right on when he says, the truths of the Bible never correct your sensibilities. You're only worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your own reason. 
So we see Jesus, we see the question, we see the answer, and Jesus says, go and do it. Just don't talk about it. Don't go to another Bible study. Do it. But then there's the conundrum. Whoops. Um, did I screw that up? Yes, I did. The conundrum already come up? I think I put it up. Yeah, I got it backwards. <laughs> the conundrum, verse 29. He, desiring, the, 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 the lawyer designed to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, he's desiring to justify himself, all right? Um, he wants to save face. He got the answer right. He got the big A in the class. He's cool. He got that right. But Jesus went further and said, okay, you know it, now do it. So now he wants to justify himself in front of his people, in front of the disciples, in front of the crowd that's there. And he asks a second question, that is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's desiring to justify himself, and he wants to save face by limiting that scope. I mean, think about it. If, you, you know, if, if Jesus confronts you and says you, you, you're not living in a loving way towards whatever it is, whoever it is. And then he uses this kind of esoteric neighbor idea. You'd want to bring that in. Because there's certain people I don't want to love, right? I mean, there's certain people in this world I do not like. Okay? I will tell you right now, if, if you are a conservative, you can't stand AOC. Okay? I'm pretty sure I can bet on that and lay money down. Okay? You do not like her. You do not like Ilhan Omar. You don't like Bernie's squad. You can't stand them. And if you're on the other side of the coin, you cannot stand, obviously, Donald Trump and his gang. And I think if we're fair, we would recognize that. We would recognize that. And so he goes, let me, let me bring the neighbor down into conservatives. <laughs> Let's bring the neighbor down to heterosexuals. Let's bring the neighbor down to males only, females only, or Democrats and conservatives. Let's narrow the scope, Jesus. How are you going to answer this one? Who's my neighbor? Well, to the Jew, and that's why I go backwards, um, there's a book written two centuries before Christ, the book of Sirach by a, a, a rabbi by the name of Ben Sirah. And this was pretty normal for the Jew to think in these terms. If you do good, know for whom you are doing it. And your kindness will have its effect. Do good to the righteous and reward will be yours. If not from them, from the Lord. No good comes to those who, comfort, who give comfort to the wicked, nor is it an act of mercy that they do. Give to the good, but refuse the sinner. See, this is what he's thinking in his mind. I'm going to reduce the scope to being neighborly to my people, but not those border people. I don't, those border people, no, 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 no. They're not my people. They're from another country. I don't like them. And then I assign names to them so it makes me feel good. They're murderers. They're rapists. They're criminals. They're X, Y, and Z. They're terrorists. They're this. They're that. Because now I can feel pretty good about narrowing the scope of who I love. But Jesus flips the script on the lawyer and puts him on the spot because what we see here is anyone in need is our neighbor. And that works towards, should be, the challenge. Verses 30 to 37, he says this. 
Um, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Um, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on, uh, um, on oil and wine. Then he set himself on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy, Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Now, here's the challenge. First of all, we immediately rip the priest and the Levite. Okay, people do it all, you know, it's all the time. Well, those guys, those guys were the bad guys. They were the Pharisees. Were, these, these guys were actually the good guys, all right? These were religious guys. As a matter of fact, they had good reason to go on the other side, especially if they were going to do any kind of religious um, um, ritual as priests and Levites. Why? Because the law said you cannot touch a dead man. So to go to the other side really would, would have been, in a sense, obeying what they understood the law to be. The issue isn't about those two. I think so often we, we, we now kind of say, you know what, are you a Pharisee or are you a Samaritan? That is, that is actually, I don't think, where Jesus is aiming at. Because this would have been somewhat normal for them to do. Okay? Now, so I don't think they're necessarily the bad guys. But Jesus does pick a Samaritan. The question is why? Why does he pick a Samaritan? You know what's interesting in, in, in verses 9, 51 through 56? Um, the Samaritan rejects Jesus. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And I love the answer here. And this is really sets up exactly how the Jews thought. When his disciples, James and John, the two sons of thunder, saw it, they said, what? Lord, do you want us to, to, to tell fire to come down to heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, the Samaritan just rejected Jesus. And the Jews, they're like all excited because, Lord, you want us to, you know, just kill him right now? Because we hate these guys. This is the hated, this is the border people, and they're hated. You know, it's interesting when you go to Jordan, one of the questions we always get asked is, why do Christians help us and Muslims don't? I've, gotten, I've, I've been about seven or eight times I've got that question every year. And it's interesting because the Jordanians do not like Syrians. It's the same border issue. Matter of fact, it's, it's, it's worse because their small city, never mind all of Jordan, got inundated. The city doubled by refugees. The Jordanians disdain that. And so when this Christian church steps into that void, it is clearly an act of love because it's a Jordanian church. And so here you have this Samaritan this person they don't like, this liberal, this conservative, this head of the LGBTQ, uh, my political opponent. The, the, I hate these guys. Jesus says, it's a Samaritan. And then in verse 33, it's interesting, he says this. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Stop there and think. As he journeyed, he saw 
and had compassion. And what we see is he sacrifices his money, his time, and so on to go out of his way to help a person that would probably want to kill him a few verses earlier. He felt compassion. I heard a few, uh, a few uh, a couple months ago, someone used this term, and I know in, in Christianity we, we understand adoption. And, um, but he used the idea of adoptive love. See, the Samaritan had every good reason to pass by this man. That was his enemy. He could have said, who do I care about this guy? This guy is, he, he has done X, Y, and Z to me. He's been a horrible person. But his compassion changed things, and he took on what, I'm using the term adoptive love. He didn't beat the guy up. It's not his problem. But he assumed the problem. See, we, we often will say, I didn't cause racism. I didn't do that. I wasn't there 150 years ago. That's not my problem. Jesus shows us an adoptive love. There's nothing that Jesus did that caused the problem, but he took on the problem for our sake. He is our example. Not the world, not your politics, not anything else. It's Jesus' kingdom mentality that is actually the example to how we are supposed to live our lives. It's an adoptive love. I don't care if you cause it or not. It does not matter. When this church took on thousands of refugees is because they had compassion. It's what God presented to them. Compassion for our enemies is the result of God's transforming love and grace in our lives. You adopt the problems in your culture. And Brandon asked me to speak about my church, and, and it's here that I want to say some words. The, the reason he did is because we had all these things we did, I guess, outreach or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it started with just as we journeyed, as he journeyed, as he was going. It's interesting in the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. The word go there is actually the idea is as you are going, make disciples. And what he's saying here is very similar in this idea of loving God is as you are going, Meet the needs of what you see. As a matter of fact, 1 John says, if you have the means to meet the needs and don't do it, it is a sin for you because there are sins of omission and commission. Many of us have a mentality that says, I am saved. I'm getting off this planet in 50 years, and that's cool. That is not what we're called to. We're called to show this adoptive love and show the glimpses of the kingdom of God to people that even might be our enemy. And I could give you a thousand verses on that. Read Romans 12 tonight if you'd like, especially 9 through the rest of the chapter. But one of the things we did is when we got to Seattle from OCF, OCF sent us, one of the first things I met one of the coaches, um, she was a softball coach. And there was a gal that was a, a star that recruited that got pregnant her freshman year. She wasn't going to be able to play, but she wanted to keep the baby, but she was having a hard time living in the dorms. So she asked, can we house this gal? And I um, went back home, talked to Donna, and it's like, yeah, absolutely. She wants to, she wants to have this baby. I, I really wish I could tell you more about this story, but time doesn't. It's an incredible story. But what it did is it opened the door for about 20 years of people living with us. We didn't go up there and go, okay, we're going to have the live-in house. <laughs> we didn't go up there and say, here's the program, here's the live-in house. It was a situation that presented itself to us. 
and we had 20 years of people living with us. One of them was, was uh, I'm not going to say his name because you could look him up, and he's fairly well-known, especially back in the 80s and 90s. He was an Olympic sprinter. Um, I had befriended him. He came to the weight room a lot. He worked with um, speed with a lot of the um, football guys and stuff like that, um, speed coaching. So I talked to him a lot about Jesus and so on. We, we gained a relationship. He was a Muslim, and um, he was always, you know, not contentious. He was really good in speaking to me, but always pushing back on the Christianity. Well, he um, tried to commit suicide, and he really messed himself up with, with trying. I, I went to see him in the hospital multiple times. And it was a, a couple months later, we were in Colorado at an AIA thing we did, and I got a call. I mean, I don't even know how he got to me, because I was in a dorm at um, Colorado State University. He goes, man, I, I, I'm in need, man. I need someone, a place to live. He was one of the many people who lived with us. Now. I'd like to say that was a great story, too. He, he started coming to church. He said he accepted Christ. But he ended up stiffing us at the time because he'd have these kind of things with a $2,000 phone bill. Um, so when you show compassion, it doesn't mean you, you get good things back all the time. Okay? We decided not to go after him. Why? Because we had a ministry to African Americans um, on the University of Washington campus. And he had, he had influence. We decided the, the, the kingdom of God, the gospel, was bigger than $2,000. And that's when we had zero money. Okay? Um, there was many other things with him. I can tell you, we, we started a homeless ministry. Not because we got up there and said, hey, let's do homeless ministry. No. Because when people are captured by the kingdom of God vision, they said, there's homeless all around us. There's dudes living under our stairs. And all we ask them to do is, please don't go to the bathroom under the stairs, because when people come to church, it smells pretty bad. So they didn't do that, so we kind of had to put boards around there. But we had all these homeless people. And so people in our church started a ministry to help the homeless. It's still going on to this day. Why? Because as they were journeyed, this is what God presented himself. Um, we, we were a block away from where my kids went to high school, which is, uh, my kids were a minority in the school. It was an urban high school. Um, it wasn't until we went there that we actually saw the problems in the high school, and we saw the gang problems in the area. We started an after-school program. Uh, one of the first things we did, we, we had dinners. It was Wednesday night, we'd have a dinner, and then we'd invite them into a Bible study. And so it was really funny, because we had this guy from Stanford, a white guy from Texas, he really wanted to help in an urban setting. You know, but he comes from a white culture, the whole thing, and it was, but he had a great heart. And um, he, uh, so we invite the people into the study, and a lot of people don't go. You know, the gang members, we had different types of people there. Well, he comes out, and his, his wallet's gone, and they immediately went to McDonald's and spent 50 bucks. I don't know how they did that. And they uh, went to um, Foot Locker and bought a bunch of shoes right away. After school program, we had so much stuff stolen that... We, we, we put uh, cameras in, and uh, it, was, it was pretty funny because you'd catch these guys stealing now, and you'd bring them in and go, there it is, and they'd go, oh, man, you know, and, but we never would call the police because the gospel was bigger than that situation. Everything we did was because people had a heart of something as they saw in the community uh, one of the guys I love is John Perkins with his idea of relocation, reconciliation, redistribution. 
I've taught that for years. They were called to that. They were called to that. It's interesting in this answer, he does not say the Samaritan, he says the one who showed him mercy. And it's interesting, mercy, because that guy did not deserve the Samaritan's help. Go and do likewise. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of what it means to be captured by the vision of the gospel, the vision of the kingdom of God. He says, can you imagine you have a friend staying at your house? You go off to work, your friend opens your mail, and you come home, and your friend says, hey, man, I saw some bills. I paid, paid your bills. He goes, and maybe the bill is like, you know, you didn't put enough postage or something. It was a couple bucks. And you can say, well, thanks. I appreciate that. But what if it was 10 years of back taxes that you could not afford that he paid for? I think your gratitude goes up. Because a lot of us, when, it, when you're going back to this idea of loving God, we love other things. That's why we're compelled by other things to not do these things and be more concerned about things like politics than we are the kingdom of God. Because when you're truly struck by what Christ has done in your life, your life will be transformed. It'll be transformed. Matter of fact, um, N.T. Wright says this about Luke 10. He says, what is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity or whether we'll see it as a call and challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. The question is, what is the church about? What is God's call on our life as followers of Jesus? And I just want to look at a couple of things in the heart, and that is true orthodoxy, results in dynamic orthopraxy. What do I mean by that? Orthodoxy is what I believe. Orthopraxy is what I do. You can have the greatest theology in the world and be a hateful person. Your theology is actually a heretical theology because you don't understand how it practically works in the kingdom of God. Secondly, the abundant eternal life begins now when we are transformed by the love and grace of Christ. When we see what Christ has actually done, we'll be humbled by it. And when we are humbled by it, we, and we understand the grace, we'll give grace to others. We'll be more concerned about ALC's spiritual life than her political plans. Because that's bigger than the politics underneath it. And lastly, until we are struck by a Jesus-side vision of the future, we'll never be fruitful in the kingdom of God. I'm just going to end with um, a quote from a letter to Diognetus um, in the second century. It's a longer quote. I took this out of it. It says, for the distinction between Christians and other men, he's talking to Diognetus about Christians. It's a Roman non-believer. It's neither in country nor language nor customs. They dwell in their own fatherlands, but as sojourners in them, they share all things as citizens, suffer all things as strangers. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is a foreign country. They pass their time upon the earth, but they have their citizenship in heaven. They obey the appointed laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. Until we begin to understand the kingdom of God and our citizenship is in heaven, in that kingdom, we will never be able to be fruitful in God's kingdom. Because it is not the first foot forward as I'm an American, or I'm a male, or I'm a conservative arm of liberal, my first foot forward, my allegiance, if you will, is to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And until we get that understanding that it's not just about going to heaven, but being part of a kingdom thing that God inaugurated and will come back to bring to full fruition, we will never understand the truth of the gospel in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you for it. We are convicted by it, Lord, and I just pray the Holy Spirit will truly um, convict our hearts to be the, 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 the people you've called us to be. And we thank you, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.